Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Thanksgiving is just over a week away, we all know, but the pandemic, it doesn't care. Coronavirus cases are on the rise nationwide, and hospitalizations have also been rising steadily since September, this according to the Johns Hopkins University. Now, at the time of this broadcast, as we always do, we want to give you the latest numbers, so here we go. The total of confirmed cases in Georgia right now at the time of this broadcast is at 391,466. The number of hospitalizations... 33,439, and of those, 6,259 ICU admissions. Now, since the state began recording deaths back in March, it now comes to 8,496 deaths. And this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, coming up in just a moment, Emory epidemiologist Dr. Jody Guest joins me to discuss the recent rise in cases. In related news, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms made a number of public safety announcements today in a live stream press conference, including an update on efforts to discourage street racing. And the mayor also, of course, reflected on the pandemic. The severity of COVID and the impact that it can have on families um, and, and people, including death, with the economic impact. So for as painful as the dispute was with the governor, I think in many ways it was very helpful for us to have that public spat because I'm seeing more people wear masks now than I previously saw. And this is just anecdotal with my moving out and about. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. I think some places are doing better than others just in terms of how they're managing social distancing, etc. Now, on another issue, Mayor Bottom said the city will hire an outside firm to review the city's policing policies. This will be a comprehensive review across APD policies, procedures, and all levels of training from new recruits to field and in-service training. It will strategically focus on areas where APD can achieve the greatest impact, including use of force, and related policies. And WAB News will have more regarding Mayor Bottoms' press conference later during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burris. Now, some other news. One of the nation's largest solar producers is coming to Houston County, Georgia. Silicon Ranch will invest $55 million in the 68-megawatt solar project. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made the announcement in a press release yesterday, and he says the project will provide clean energy to more than 11,000 EMC households. Now on to the other news that's been happening. Uh, the Georgia Secretary of State's office says counties across Georgia are almost done auditing ballots from the general election. 
Yay. More than 4.9 million ballots have been counted so far, and President-elect Biden's lead now unofficially stands at about 12,781 over President Donald Trump. Now, earlier today, Gabe Sterling, as he always does with the Secretary of State's office at a press conference, he talked about, again, those allegations of inaccurate voter tallies from the president and other Republican Party leaders. The president's um, tweets talking about fraudulent votes, again, it's a little ironic because he has actually gained votes from this process. So we are doing diligently following our law. And I would hope that people would go to trusted sources like their own county elections directors or the secretary of state site to get real information about how the system works and what we're doing to, to, to protect everybody's vote in the state. Well, joining me now, has, he's been doing for a while now. He's our unofficial Closer Look elections audit recount correspondent from WABE's newsroom. My colleague, reporter Emil Moffitt. Emil, you like that title? Did that work for you? It's going to be a little hard to fit on the business card, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, look, Gabriel Sterling fielded a lot of questions from reporters today during the press conference. Let's begin here. How confident is he that the county elections officials will complete their audits by this evening's deadline? He was asked specifically about that, and he said he didn't see any red flags as far as counties that might not be able to meet that deadline. Um, as you mentioned, 4.9 million of the ballots have been counted by hand in this audit, and but there's still work left to do even beyond the hand counting. Counties still have to double check their, their, their numbers and make sure that everything lines up uh, before they submit it to the state. So there's actually still a lot of legwork to be done, but he feels confident that, that it can be done by midnight tonight. And Emil, we understand some glitches were detected in Fayette and Douglas County. What happened here? Yeah, uh, Fayette and Douglas and, and then Floyd, which we learned about a couple of days ago, uh, mostly instances of um, memory cards uh, not being uploaded uh, all uh, completely to the system. So when they went back and they counted the, the ballots, they found more ballots than votes had been counted. Mm -hmm. um, and this netted uh, in Fayette County, about 400 votes for President Trump, and in Floyd County, about 800 votes uh, for President Trump. A lot of these were early voting totals that were not uh, uploaded. Um, and so they are finding things like this. And Gabe Sterling said, this is part of the audit process. This is why the audit is done, to find inconsistencies. And these have been the biggest two examples. But he also noted that um, more than 50 counties had zero difference between mm -hmm. what was reported um, uh, from the original count and what came out of the audit. And we should note that this was a memory card that was found during the audit. Is this how these the, the, the count initially, when they sent it to the Secretary of State's office, it's all uploaded through a memory card and through, a, through the... Yes, the memory cards come from the scanners, uh, which, which are used not only to, um, uh, for, for people who go to vote in person, they take their their printout from their ballot marking device and throw it through the scanner. And that scanner has a memory card on it. And then they take the memory card uh, and they upload that um, to the Secretary of State's website. And that's how all the, to the uh, votes get, to get aggregated. And so this is a case of where you have that paper trail backup mm -hmm. to actually go in and, and count and verify that the number of ballots correspond to the number of votes that were cast. The Secretary of State's office says it's investigating now whether observers in Fulton County were sent home on election night, even as, you know, workers were still counting absentee ballots. What do you know about this? 
Um, that's something that we're, we're still trying to kind of get to the bottom of. And I know the Secretary of State's office has sent its investigators to, to look at videotape from State Farm Arena and to talk to, to witnesses who were there. Uh, what Gabe Sterling said yesterday was that there were multiple rooms at State Farm Arena where ballots were being processed and they weren't sure that, that observers were uh, there at all times uh, on election night. Um, because there was some uh, discrepancy that, that we can even remember going back to election night where they said they're done counting uh, in Fulton County. They had gone home for the night and then apparently they weren't, um, but it's still being investigated as, as far as who actually was, was there and whether observers were, were there the whole time or, or whether they weren't. So that's something that uh, is still yet to be found out. But at the same time, when you when you say that there are these double checks, all these double checks along the way, voter check-ins, ballots versus you know voter registrations to make sure that you know ballots aren't just showing up out of nowhere. Sounds like CSI elections investigators. <laughs> well, Emil, <laughs> I'll get an email about that. Now that this audit is almost complete, what's next? Because President Trump, the Trump campaign, they can ask for a recount. Not necessarily an audit, which is different, but a recount, correct? Yes, because the yes because the race is within a half a percent. Uh, the losing candidate uh, has, by law, the the right to request a formal recount, uh, and this would happen after uh, certification, which is supposed to happen on Friday. Mm -hmm. The difference is this will not be a hand recount. This will be actually sending the ballots through the machines again and seeing what the total is. Uh, Gabe Sterling, with the Secretary of State's office, is saying. Um, we, we think that, you know, hopefully logic would prevail in saying we just did this hand recount and this audit, um, and that another one wouldn't be needed, but it is still, uh, the president's right to, uh, to request this recount because of the closeness of the race. Mm. WABE's Emil Moffitt is always Emil. Thank you so much for taking time and keeping our listeners informed. I really appreciate it. Thanks Rose. Enjoyed it. All right. Take care now. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at ourgeorgiacoast.org. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Dirty Dozen, besides a film classic, is also the annual report from the Georgia Water Coalition. I like that movie. The 30-page report lists 12 of the biggest threats to Georgia's waterways, from the Chattahoochee to the Okefenokee Swamp, where they have 10,000 alligators. I told y'all that earlier this week. And the report also provides recommendations for cleaning these waterways, what we, what we all can do. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Jesse de Montbriom Chapman. Jesse's the executive director and riverkeeper at the Coosa River Basin Initiative, which is part of the Georgia Water Coalition. Jesse, thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been to the Okefenokee Swamp? I have. It's been a number of years, but I have. 
There are 10,000 alligators down there, Jesse. There are a lot of alligators, and there are a lot of alligators in a number of the Blackwater rivers down there near the coast. And uh, I have never been uh, frightened by an alligator. Unless they've been fed, they want nothing to do with you. <laughs> so we keep hearing. But Jesse, before we dig into this report, for folks that may not be familiar, tell us more about the Coosa River Basin, because it's up in North Georgia, right? And it, Yes, ma'am. Okay. And we are... Uh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, it's uh, the upper Coosa River Basin is predominantly comprised of a number of tributaries, the Etowah River, the Ustanala, Conasaga, and Kusawati. And what's special about this basin is it has an enormous amount of biodiversity. Hmm. Uh, that Conasaga River by itself has more individual aquatic species in it than all of the rivers in Europe combined. Really? Uh, so it's a pretty special place, yeah. Wow. And I imagine with your organization, um, the Coosa River Basin Initiative, you all work to make sure it stays that way. Yes, that is our mission is to protect, preserve, and restore uh, the Upper Coosa River. We're happy to do it. How do y'all do that? <laughs> <laughs> we have a number of program areas, uh, everything from public education, advocacy, water monitoring, and then restoration in areas where the environment has been degraded and uh, we have work to do to restore it. Uh, you all are a part of the Georgia Water Coalition, which is made of at least, I think, 250 organizations. You all have a shared mission, and you all come together to protect and, and obviously care for Georgia's surface water and groundwater resources. Let me get your thoughts on this. Uh, right now, what is at the top of y'all's list shared with this coalition that, that needs to be addressed? And also, if you will, is mankind, are we the sort of the culprits of this? Uh, yes, I think uh, human impact on our waterways is, is an enormous, um, just an enormous problem that we face. Um, now, while I personally believe that there is no uh, need to view development and economic development as mutually exclusive with it, Mm -hmm. sound environmental policy, um, human impact to our waterways uh, is, is immense. And we have a lot of work to do. I think um, some of the primary things that we are focused on right now, uh, certainly topping that list would be the handling of coal ash across mm -hmm. the state. Um, ash left over from burning coal to generate power um, that's being left in unlined ponds across the state next to waterways. But I thought that there was, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my colleague Molly Samuel has been doing a lot of reporting on this over the years. I thought that for some folks, like I think Georgia Power, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, they were going to clean up some of this stuff or, or maintain these? Yes, yeah, so the current plan is to excavate roughly half of the coal ash, just a little bit less than half of the coal ash across the state and move that to lined landfill facilities. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, just over half of the coal ash that Georgia Power currently has, uh, the, the intended permanent closure plan is to leave that coal ash sitting in unlined landfills. Now it will be dewatered and then covered with an impervious surface, but the majority of those ponds, if not all of them are sitting in groundwater. But, it, and look, I am not an expert obviously, but I can imagine someone listening saying, well, 
online, that seems not a, a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Jesse, I'm just a, I'm just your average public radio host, just trying to get information for the people. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think as much technology and engineering you want to put on top of that pile of ash, if the bottom is unlined and it is sitting in groundwater, the constituents of that ash can move outside of the confines of that pond, which I and many of us in the Georgia Water Coalition believe is, is a very poor choice for the mm -hmm. permanent storage of that ash. Well, and I'm sure that's a big part of, obviously, this report. This is the 10th annual edition. Uh, you all put this out. So uh, what stood out to you this year? And I know there are five of these are new editions. So let's, for our listeners, let's start with the, the five new editions that you all have included in this dirty dozen, these, these harmful entities, agents, whatever, to our, our waterways here. Sure. I think... Um, if I may start out by saying we're, we're most excited about what's not included in the report. Well, that's a good place to start. <laughs> Specifically, uh, the misappropriation of environmental trust funds. This is something that the Georgia Water Coalition has been working on for over a decade. And just earlier this month, Georgia voters overwhelmingly approved Constitutional Amendment 1, mm -hmm which will allow those fees to be dedicated. So money that's supposed to be spent cleaning up abandoned hazardous sites, old landfills and illegal tire dumps will actually be spent on those projects and not shuffled into other parts of the state budget. So that is an enormous win and really speaks to the heart of the Dirty Dozen report. Our goal is to elevate these issues so that one day we can take them off of the report. Um, but looking at some of the items that make their debut, there, there are a handful. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the really wild ones is related to the Chattahoochee River outside of Columbus, where a combined uh, sewer and stormwater system is frequently spilling raw sewage into a river that is famous for whitewater paddling. Hmm. And the, the waterworks there have been resistant to permit changes that would require them to test for fecal coliform and, and limit other pollutants that are going into the water that is being used by thousands of people recreationally hmm. each year. Um, a number of other ones, uh, a couple of the other new uh, items on this report are related to landfills. Uh, just outside of Atlanta, north of Atlanta, on the Etowah River in my basin, two landfills had been taking too much high moisture content waste. They were taking municipal sewage sludge, so the dead bugs and byproduct left, left over after treating uh, municipal wastewater. And that high moisture content waste caused slope stability issues and failures at two landfills that are just a few miles apart. And these failures happened about a year apart and sent a very clear red flag to the Environmental Protection Division. Luckily, uh, the EPD is being proactive in presenting a rule change that will address some of these issues. And we look forward to seeing the Department of Natural Resources Board consider that rule change in the coming months. Jesse, I don't I know y'all may not try to be too political, but listen, when it talks about when we come when it comes to talking about the environment, listen, you can't avoid it. But 
with the election of Joe Biden, President-elect Joe Biden, you, oh, you're all hopeful some of those changes to the Federal Clean Water Act that President Trump had, you know, reduced some re- regulations on. You all are hopeful that that might uh, work in your favor for some of these initiatives that, that you all are involved in. I mean... Absolutely. I I do want to always start with a reminder that the Georgia Water Coalition is a bipartisan coalition and we happily work on both sides of the aisles. In this particular instance, I I think one of the clearest examples of our hopes moving forward, uh, the waters of the U.S. rule uh, that Obama, the Obama administration rolled out was rolled back by the Trump administration and a new Clean Water Act rule uh, determining what waters are protected by federal laws uh, was rolled back and immediately put in its crosshairs the Okefenokee Swamp. Mm-hmm. So one of the items on the list making a return appearance is the Trail Ridge mining proposal from Twin Pines LLC. And in this case, this company that wanted to strip mine for titanium immediately next to the Okefenokee Swamp, one of our Did you say titanium? Yes, yes. So a a titanium mine. Right. Uh, To to mine a ridge that many believe provides a barrier for the Okefenokee Swamp. And... Uh, There are serious concerns among EPA, among the U.S. Army Corps, that this mining proposal will, could have significant impacts to the hydrology of that swamp. However, with this rule being rolled back, the wetlands that are covered in this parcel are no longer considered jurisdictional for federal law. So with this rule going into effect earlier this summer, basically the federal government, the U.S. Army Corps, has no more say in what this company does with that property, and it leaves it to state leaders to decide whether or not state permits are approved. And uh, we think that this is, we would hope that moving forward, a future administration would reconsider the ramifications of that rule change and roll it back because this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. We will see issues like this across the country if this rule is not rolled back. So also you're going to also you're going to need the help of the General Assembly here when they go back in session to possibly introduce some measures. Uh, Something I noticed in the report, you all said runoff from the industrial hog farms in North Carolina has contributed to massive fish kills. So a, a state a nearby state, their runoff impacts, obviously because we know some of the waterways run throughout different states, but that is impacting Georgia, Georgia's waterways here? Well, uh, in the report, so it, the runoff from North Carolina is not impacting Georgia's waters. The, the, the issue at hand is this attempt to rewrite the Right to Farm Act in Georgia. So, uh, legislation was introduced in North Carolina to try and keep uh, hog farmers from facing liability when they created these types of fish kills. Now, the legislation that was passed in North Carolina was introduced in Georgia verbatim. Mm -hmm. It was a copy and paste legislation 
that we saw as a very clear attempt to usher in industrial scale feeding operations in Georgia. Think millions of hogs with all of their <laughs> fecal matter going into giant open air lagoons. Um, well, you've painted a very good the, picture there, Jesse. Um, it's it's not it's not a pleasant it's not a pleasant sight certainly not a pleasant smell uh, would be disastrous to live next to, and this overhaul of the Right to Farm Act uh, would put rural property owners uh, at risk and existing farmers whose uh, own farming lifestyle a lot of small family owned farms would be threatened by the fact that a law that has worked for 30 years to protect them from nuisance lawsuits would essentially be erased and rewritten to provide a clear advantage to large scale feeding operations. Well, Jesse, I can imagine someone listening saying, you know, you all have been doing this now for a decade and some of the old threats, quote unquote, old threats are still on this list. Can you all gauge uh, how effective this report has been, whether it's for state or, or federal, you know, lawmakers. And can you all assess that, that this report has led to some, some action or some, some outcomes that you all wanted? Absolutely. I, I think earlier this year, the trust fund issue is one of our biggest triumphs in a number of years, but uh, each report and all of them can be found on the Georgia Water Coalition's website. Each report is concluded with an update section. And some of those updates are the needle moving in the wrong direction, but often they are previous entries that have been uh, either fixed or the impacts reduced. Um, progress is always made. And so this report remains just an invaluable tool to help elevate localized issues onto the statewide stage mm -hmm. and help us connect the dots and recognize when a local issue is actually representative of a broad scale problem in the regulatory structure of the state. And just when you consider this year that which has brought a whole lot obviously with the pandemic and then you you were hopeful your organization is hopeful that because a lot of attention will be paid to COVID-19 and everything tied to that. Uh, you're hoping that environmental issues such as, especially with Georgia's waterways, does not sort of get lost uh, when the lawmakers, when the state lawmakers return to the state capitol uh, next year. You all, what, I guess, partnerships and, and lobbying groups do you all have to work on your, your behalf to make sure that these issues make it to these lawmakers? Well, I will say one of the benefits of working with uh, a consortium of over 260 member groups in the Georgia Water Coalition, um, uh, lots of small companies and small organizations when band together have a lot of lobbying might. And mm -hmm. on any given issue that we work on, we have a number of um, allies, uh, partners that work alongside us. Um, at, at, an incredible partner for us throughout the whole trust fund uh, endeavor was the ACCG, uh, formerly Association County Commissioners of Georgia. And um, the connection was obvious for them. This money was supposed to be coming back to our communities to help clean up blight properties and it wasn't happening. And counties were often stuck footing the bill for 
hazardous site cleanups or illegal tire dump cleanups. So we always have uh, just an incredible group of partners that work alongside us and uh, the members within the coalition um, working towards shared goals and putting differences aside to work towards, you know, universal outcomes is is really powerful. And we're always concerned that environmental issues are going to take the back seat. Uh, although I think that more than anything, this pandemic has demonstrated some of the vulnerabilities in our state's response to environmental issues. Mm -hmm. Um, the Environmental Protection Division before this pandemic was uh, anemic in its funding. It was constantly understaffed and having a difficult time carrying out its mission. And with the hits to the budget from the pandemic and with uh, restrictions on travel, that is just even more glaring. And so we hope that this will provide a, a renewed focus on needing to beef up the state's response. And just I want to end with looking at obviously uh, the state's largest river here, and that of course is the Chattahoochee. And there's always a lot of focus on this because of the look, it provides so much drinking water to at least I think y'all say 40% of the state's population. Uh, how would you grade or assess the Chattahoochee River right now, those threats to it, and what concerns you all have? Yeah, well, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Georgia's largest river is actually the Altamaha, but the Chattahoochee, oh, really? does, okay. indeed, yes, the, the Chattahoochee does indeed provide uh, the most Georgians with drinking water. Um, and I, I, I believe that the, like most of the rivers in Georgia, what we see is slow and steady improvement. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly a number of threats. We're constantly looking at how stormwater is impacting our waterways, how plastic pollution is impacting those waterways and what that means. And then there's this whole group of emerging contaminants, uh, new chemicals, forever chemicals like PFAS that we're just starting to wrap our heads around you know, some of the health concerns and how we can get this out of our drinking water. So I think there are a number, there are a number of concerns that face uh, even the Chattahoochee River. Uh, but I think that the, the status for most of these is continues to remain slow and steady improvement. We shall see. Jesse, who do you hopeful, are you hopeful will read this report? Everyone, anyone that's concerned about what comes out of their tap and the quality of the water where they go to fish and swim and kayak. <laughs> All right. And what's your favorite activity on water, Jesse? My favorite is kayaking. I love it. All right. Well, I'll meet you out there as long as there are no gators. But I don't think we'll be in a different part where gators wouldn't be where I would be kayaking, right? <laughs> Right, yeah. Jesse? Okay, just check. <laughs> I would never make you get in the river with a gator. <laughs> I don't know. Some folks probably wouldn't mind that, Jesse. By the way, we'll have a link to the report on our website. Jesse DeMumbrium Chapman is Executive Director and Riverkeeper at the Coosa River Basin Initiative. And we've been talking about this annual Dirty Dozens report. Thank you so much for what you all do for, you know, Georgia's waterways. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. Glad to do it. Thank you for having me.
Social continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. As you heard me say earlier, Thanksgiving is next week. What are your plans? Probably not the usual gathering as in holidays pass, or, or will it be the same? This year's holiday season will be like no other, that's for sure, because the United States, of course, is experiencing its worst period, as we hear, for COVID-19 infections to date. Now, when asked about Thanksgiving and suggestions for gathering, here's what Dr. Anthony Fauci said last week at the Washington Nationals Cathedral's 2020 Ignatius Forum. I think every family unit needs to do a risk assessment and a risk-benefit ratio. If you have people in your family who are elderly or who have underlying conditions that make them susceptible to severe outcome, you've got to make a decision. Do you want people to travel, to spend time in a crowded airport, to get on a plane and maybe not have time for quarantining after they get here, or not have the ability or understanding how they can get a test quickly enough? You may want to make a decision that you're just going to forestall it. Now, whenever I say that, I'm the Grinch that stole Thanksgiving. I'm not saying that. I'm saying everyone needs to seriously think about the risk-benefit. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci on Thanksgiving, so you can listen to him or you can listen to Uncle Bob. Meanwhile, for Georgia, the White House Coronavirus Task Force most recent report referred to the state's increase in test positivity as, quote, an early sign of future deterioration. Well, join me now from Emory University, Dr. Jody Guess. She's professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. What are your Thanksgiving plans? Uh, I think my Thanksgiving plans are really different this year, although uh, hopefully, like most other people's, I'm no longer traveling home to see my family like I normally do. Mm -hmm. I will be outside with my immediate family uh, eating Thanksgiving dinner on the back deck. Now, you heard what Dr. Anthony Fauci said, and even earlier today, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms told reporters she nixed her own mother's Thanksgiving plans. Take a listen to this. My mother called me about a month ago and said she thought we could have dinner at my niece's house and we try and keep it to just 50 people this year. So I, you know, quickly shut that down and reminded her that that was probably uh 45 people too many. So we'll be doing virtual Thanksgiving dinner um, in our family. Now, it is hard to go against mama. I know that. But what do you make of that? I mean, a lot of families, not just Mayor Bottoms' mother, there are a lot of I mean, I have family members that say, well, maybe if it's just all of us. I'm like, that's not the solution, y'all. Um, why do you think people, for some people, they feel like, well, if it's just our tight-knit family? But you say no. And, and 50 is a lot. I mean... 50 is a lot. I don't have a family that that's big, that's that big. For well, sure. I do, but <laughs> <laughs> I think the difference is who is the family that you've been living with versus mm -hmm. who's your family that you haven't been living with. And those you've been living with are your safe space. You share all the same risks on a daily basis. Those who are in your family who you don't normally see on a regular basis, you're bringing your risks to them mm -hmm. or you're getting their risks if you get together for Thanksgiving. Something else that Dr. Fauci and other scientists and health experts are saying, it's time to abandon this state-by-state -state approach for you know mitigating the risk here, but they, there should be a national strategy. What do you make of that? Um, you know, I think that having people have different approaches to it has been confusing. Mm -hmm. It is an easy way for us to get our science messaging out to the public in 
in different ways that can be used against each other. We need a very consistent, positive message about what we should all be doing to help each other and ourselves stay safe as we wait for vaccines to be available for us. And we are now seeing some states that initially were not big on mandatory masks and facial coverings. For example, Iowa. Earlier in the year, Governor Kim Reynolds referred to the preventive measures such as masks and, and even shelter-in-place orders. And I'm quoting the governor back then. She said those were, quote, feel-good measures. Well, now she has reversed course. Uh, my question for you, Dr. Guess, if all the states could have enacted these measures early on, same time, months ago, where might this nation be regarding the coronavirus? So you're asking a question about something we deal with all the time in epidemiology. What's the counterfactual if we'd done this differently um, a long time ago? And um, I think we all can say we wish we would have. We believe we would see fewer cases. We believe our needing to stay socially distanced would have been shorter. Um, we believe we would have far, far fewer deaths across the United States. Mm -hmm. Wow. By the way, counterfactual sounds like an indie band out of Athens somewhere. It's a good name for <laughs> a band. Good one. <laughs> um, well, let me ask you this. Uh, Georgia being the, one of the first states to open back up for business, uh, a mistake, misstep from state officials, and, and obviously it, it starts with Governor Brian Kemp, you think? You know, I think that um, our numbers started to rise immediately after that, and um, we could all wish that we had stayed socially distanced a bit longer. Mm -hmm. I asked a Morehouse School of Medicine researcher, Dr. Lily Immergluck, earlier this week about uh, what was so complex about this virus that, you know, we didn't know, obviously, back in February that we know now. I'm going to ask you this. What has stood out for you in terms of what we know now, what folks like you know now about this virus? Well, I think the fact that it's a novel coronavirus and so we're learning every single day about it is an incredibly important thing to remember. When we change the messaging we have, um, it is usually based on new information and we should all want to be learning as we move forward. The original messaging about masking not being super necessary it has been a really big stumbling block to come back from. Mm -hmm. And in a large part, that was to save masks in our very small supply for healthcare professionals. And um, in retrospect, we probably should have explained that much better. I know obviously the big news has been with the vaccines, but I want to get into something else that just was, was reported yesterday. And that is the FDA approved the first COVID-19 diagnostic at-home self-test that will reportedly provide rapid results. Uh, your thoughts on that, because there's so many concerns about false negative results. So do you have some concerns about this being the first FDA-approved at-home self-test? Because I imagine folks are already online trying to pre-order them. By the way, folks, you spend maybe about 50 bucks. I'm just letting y'all know. Yeah, about $50 to get it at home. I, we definitely need more testing and we need more ways to get it. And getting testing at home is something that we've been doing with HIV and, and um, you know for PrEP and HIV work. And so I am fully in support of that being where we need to move. We do need to be careful about false negatives. We also need to be careful about knowing that a test means you're um, testing in a time zone and you may be testing too early and you may not yet test positive, even if you are going to be um, or going to test positive later. And so it is not a get out of jail card free. Um, 
you know, test. And you also need to remember that it's only your, um, how you're testing right then. So mm -hmm. if you go out and go, you know, to a really crowded event the next day, your risks are very different, even though you just had a negative test. What are your thoughts on folks who say, well, maybe I need to just go get the antibodies tests um, to see if I have, you know, had contracted the virus and didn't know it. Do you think that is helpful? Because I've, I, a lot of people say, I'm just going to go do that because I keep testing negative, but maybe I already had it. So they go on. Right. You think that's a good idea? So the antibody tests are um, a little hard to understand at the moment. You know, <laughs> yeah. They're just, just going to tell us if we've had it. And, and the problem is we don't know what that means. Mm. So we don't yet know if I've had it if I am actually protected from getting it again, or if I am, how long I'm protected. So it's an interesting thing to know. It's not particularly helpful um, in helping us know how we should be interacting with each other. Regardless of antibody tests, we st should still all be masking. We should still all be socially distancing. Do we know that if you've contracted the virus before that you can contract it again? I've heard conflicting Again, that goes back to the messaging, which is what you talked about. Exactly. We didn't know that. Um, we do now believe you can. There have been a couple of cases that have been very well documented in the medical literature showing some genetic differences in a secondary case of COVID-19. How common that is, mm -hmm. we don't yet know. Mm. Early on, it was folks with underlying, underlining conditions, perhaps those in our senior community, um, and now the 18 to 35-year-olds, you know. And, and then also now we're hearing anybody can contract this virus, and depending on what you have or don't have, you, you can still be at risk because this virus kills. What is th That's still baffling to scientists, to folks like you all. You all haven't been able to just pinpoint. At this point, is it just safe to say everybody is at risk when you, for contracting this virus, point blank and period? Absolutely. Yeah, everyone is at risk and no one needs to think that they're um, immune to this um, because we don't have vaccines yet to help with our immunity. We This is another stumbling block message we had at the beginning when we focused on our really high risk populations to really work to try to protect them and make sure that they knew that they were in the high risk groups. It That seemed to have been interpreted as if I'm not in that group, I am not going to get this. And that's not correct. 18 to 29 year olds, as you pointed out, are our highest number of cases in the state of Georgia. And we should note, folks, don't just kick your 18 to 29 year olds out to the curb. Just <laughs> you can't come to dinner. You got to sit on the porch. That's right. <laughs> Put them in a mask. Right. <laughs> folks like you, the scientists and, and everyone who's working on whether it's a vaccine or trying to study this virus and and, and trying to come up with as much information I want to focus on the Atlanta region and brag on y'all for a moment because from Morehouse School of Medicine to Emory to Georgia State to UGA, every all these great institutions here um, working together. What does it say about the the Atlanta area of, you know, uh, institutions and scientists and all that and what you all have been able to do? Because you've been down this road before with Ebola, obviously with HIV AIDS from way back. Um, again, once again, the Atlanta region is at the center of, of possibly being, you know, being able to either come up with a vaccine or, or, or a treatment for this. Right. It's an exciting city to live in, no doubt. I mean, this is actually why I moved to Atlanta was to come here for these institutions. You know, we have a robust educational system in Atlanta and we have some of the brightest minds 
um, in public health who live around here with CDC and Emory and Georgia Tech and Morehouse and UGA. And so it's exciting to have these incredible colleagues who are available and to see institutions who are working together mm -hmm. because this is for the common good. And it, so there's nothing um, you know, about needing to be separated from each other. We are all trying to make a difference and a positive impact in this pandemic so that people will not die, so that the suffering will stop, so that we can all get back to a semblance of normalcy, which we're all certainly yearning for. And so I imagine, Dr. Guest, when we hear reports, and NPR had a report on this, I believe, on Monday, uh, about folks, the messaging that's been spread, that this is a hoax, it's not real, it's just a real bad flu or a bad pneumonia. When you, pneumonia, when you hear that, and that's, that goes up against the science, and we keep hearing everyone says, let's follow the science. And then when you hear that type of messaging up against what you all are doing, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's disheartening. And I think a bunch of us spend a lot of time trying to make sure really good information does get out to the communities um, and the, the general population. It's important that we share what we know. It's important when we share what we have learned that's different than what we've said before. But it is hard to hear folks who are frankly spreading um, inaccurate um, statements about COVID-19. It's not helpful. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, people are dying because of it. In fact, at the time of this broadcast, the U.S. is at a quarter million deaths. Um, Indeed. We've had 1.7 million cases in the last 10 days. What do you see going into 2021 and where this nation will be with this pandemic? So we've got some bright lights in our tunnel. We've got two vaccines that are incredibly effective, way more effective than we would have anticipated, and they're going to be coming. But until then, we all have a lot of personal responsibility about doing the things that are under our control to, to keep ourselves safe and our family and loved ones safe and our communities safe. Um, especially as we try to get our children back to school mm -hmm. um, after the holiday break. So we need to continue to talk about wearing our masks. As a scientist, as a scientist through your lens, mm -hmm. should, I mean, we know some institutions of higher learning are going to bring back some students. It's not clear what some of the K through 12 school systems will do, but if you were advising them, what would be your advice about that decision? going to bring bring them back i think you can come back to school yeah i think you can come back to school safely um there are, are agreements that need to be put into place in order to do that so it's about um asking people to stay distance before they come back to get tests to um the schools that have been testing regularly have been very successful at staying open they test regularly and they have mandatory masking those are really critical components to having a very successful educational opportunity that's in person. From Emory University, Dr. Jody Guest, professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. Dr. Guest, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Have a good Thanksgiving with your family outside. <laughs> thank you so much, Rose. I hope you have a good and safe Thanksgiving as well. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson, our engineer Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of this any of this broadcast, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast. 
Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. The world has changed, from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.